Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Ruler podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson. And for this edition, we're at the Derby Velodrome. Later, we'll be hearing from the amateur team based here who've been taking on and beating some of the best teams in the world. First, though, I'm going for a ride round the track in Endura's brand-new ultra-aerodynamic drag-to-zero kit. And let's see how much difference a slippery suit can make even to a chopper like me. So look over my shoulder, onto the track, keep the speed up. The first thing to say is that for an ultra aerodynamic skin suit, this is actually pretty comfortable. It's their road version, which I think is a polite way of saying it's built for people who can't really get down into an Alex Dowsett crouch on the track, which certainly includes me. These are not probably the best and most scientific conditions uh, to test something like this, but certainly compared to my usual track wear of club jersey and shorts, and if I'm feeling really fancy, a standard skin suit, it feels pretty slippery. But how much difference is something like this gonna make, not on the World Cup, not at the highest Olympic level, but to an ordinary rider. While I'm circling around here like an idiot, my ruler colleague Hannah Troop is down with one of the people responsible for designing the kit. On your right. Thanks, Ian. So I'm here with Simon Smart from Drag to Zero. So Ian is currently zooming around in the Aero Road race suit. Uh, can you just describe to us exactly what that suit is and, and what it does? So we spent a long time optimising this suit for, for those conditions, you know, in a typical road position, road speeds. Um, so we're careful with fabric selection. Typically on someone's back, the flow can stay quite well attached quite easily. So, you, you know, a, a smooth fabric is fine and there's no advantage by adding, by texturing the surface. By texturing the surface, you can re-energise the flow and almost fool the air into following the contour for longer. And the importance with that is that you know, it's a basic aim of aerodynamics, that if you can have a streamline around an object, then you don't get a low pressure behind it, and that because that, that's what's the main cause of, of drag. And in the area, in the regions like on his arms, 
and uh, on the sides on his flanks where there's more flow separation we've introduced textured materials to control the flow to um, hold so that the flow um, adheres to the profile of Ian's body for longer therefore reducing the pressure drag Likewise, we can see on the legs, we've got silicon, and again, that's used to help turbulate the flow and keep it attached as he's pedalling around the, the back of his thighs. The new Endura range consists of the encapsulator suit for the hardcore time trialist or prosciutto, the road suit, which I'm wearing now, and separate bibs and jerseys. They're all designed to be aerodynamic at the most appropriate speeds and body positions. So take us through, so we've got the new encapsulator and the road suit and then there's the bibs. How does the kind of the technology filter down and how relevant is it to people buying into aero kit? When I started this business, people always associated um, aerodynamics with riding at 30 mile an hour. And gradually the realisation has come down to the fact that it's, expect, it's affecting you even when you're riding at 15 mile an hour. So, it's, it, so you know, on, on the flat, even at 15 mile an hour, there's more more of your power is overcoming air molecules than it is the resistance in the tyres, which are the sort of fundamental forces acting against you. So it doesn't really matter what level you're at, if you want to, or what shape or size you, you are, if you want to go faster, then a, a, a huge amount of air is, is, being, is, is being sort of imparting force onto your body that you're having to overcome. So even at the, you don't have to be really, really serious to justify having aero clothing. If you know if if, the, if speed matters to you and you want to improve your personal best, whether it be on, in a segment or in a sportif, then it's it's the way to go. You know it's easier to do that than to put to put the the power, extra power through the legs. You first started out in Formula One. How did that transition come from Formula One into cycling? I was uh, in Formula One to the age of 37, and Formula One grew massively. Uh, and it went from being, say, 10 engineers in the team to 250. So my role was changing quite a lot, and I was always had quite a sort of entre entrepreneurial spirit, I suppose. And at the same time, I was really keen on time trialing and road racing. And, and I could, and I was, you know, and I, so I was working in Red Bull wind tunnel every day doing aerodynamics. And probably what was more in my mind was how I was going to make myself faster in the time trials. And you know, and back then, it's around 2007. There wasn't that much product on the market to buy either and there was no one reading any rider testing in, in the UK so that's where I first uh, saw the first opportunity to um, start a business. So I started the business in 2007 which coupled Drag to Zero which was the rider testing part of it with um, product development. So I started uh, my first um, job I had was working with Giant and uh, at the time Team High Road where we developed the Giant Trinity first time trial bike that, that was a lot of fun and since then it's, everything's been sort of running parallel so it's worked quite nicely because being able to do uh, understand rider positions and their needs and athletes needs along with the product needs so it really we sort of kept everything sort of 50 50 so often we would do a week in the wind tunnel now and it would be 50 percent developing products like the endurance skin suits for instance and then two and a, and a two and a half days we'll be doing riders, whether they be the, the pro teams or amateurs. Simon Smart, well it's time for me now to get down off the track, get my breath back and talk to some more people. Jim McFarlane of Endura, can you explain to us the thinking behind Endura launching the, the, the new Drag to Zero um, kit and the aerodynamic kit for, I guess, what we might call ordinary riders? 
Well, we've been working in this space for quite a few years now, but this is a, the culmination of that relationship with, first of all, Simon Smart at, at Drag to Zero, um, who we've been working with since the Enduro Racing days back in, well, since I first brought Alex Vetterl to the wind tunnel back in 2011 or 2012. And also with Movistar team and Movistar women's team and Cervelo Begla. We've been working in that space when we signed up with Movistar for 2014. Uh, we had a lot of battles to fight, uh, a lot of progress to be made, and that's part of the reason we were doing it. But from a performance point of view, the, it struck us very quickly that the biggest single area that we could actually provide performance gains for them was in the time trials and aero um, specifically on that with the, with the clothing side of things. So we ended up working very intensively with Simon and with Movistar team um, on aero clothing ever since then. I've uh, been very well recognised within the pro peloton as being kind of top of our game in that. And this is it now, as we do generally with what we do with Movistar and with other sponsored uh, you know, athletes, um, is transferring that technology and that know-how into our main range. And this, I mean, these, these suits with the encapsulation and silicon first made their appearance in the Vuelta in 2015. So it's now pretty much three years later that we're actually seeing it available in store, uh, which is quite satisfying, but it does, does remind me it's quite a long gestation period uh, to go from one to the other. The suits that are being released to the public now are sort of the developments, if you like, of the one that Alex Dowsett wore for the world record a couple of years ago, the world hour record a couple of years ago. Uh, how are they different are they, or, or are they pretty much the same thing? It's horses for courses, okay? The core technology that we have now using the silicon surface topography is higher performance than what we had for Alex in his May 2015 hour attempt, a successful attempt. We were just playing with the technology at that time, but unsurprisingly, Movistar didn't really want to be the guinea pigs. We had a very fast suit for a high speed um, with the fabric construction that we had previously, they were very happy with it. They were pretty conservative and they thought, this is fast enough, let's not throw the, you know, we don't want to twist again and find that actually this doesn't work as we'd anticipated. Um, so the technology's moved on since. Alex, I'm sure, would have grasped the chance to have the silicon if it was available to him, but Movistar a bit more conservative by nature. So uh, we're now working with faster suits, but also we tune this, the, the speed gets tuned. You know, when you're doing an hour record in a velodrome and it's over 50 kph, as it obviously is, that's not appropriate to then tune a, a suit to that for an amateur 25-mile open road time trialist. We have designed them to appropriate speed ranges by observation of what is really happening out there in the real world. So I'm here with Lotta Lapisto and Claire Rose, who are part of the Savella Bigler cycling team. Claire, let's start with you first. So you've just joined the team this year. How are things going so far? Yeah, I guess um, just super excited to be part of such an amazing setup. I've had a bit of a rocky winter, so it's going to be a bit, a bit of a slow start to the season. I had quite a big crash just before Worlds last year um, and then had quite a bad knee injury as a result. And then I've just been struggling a bit with illness at the beginning of this year. So... But no, I'm really looking forward to it. And so you've come into Savella Bigler as their as a time trial um, sort of specialist. Can you just give a bit of background on on your time trial, your national um, titles, and 
and where you've kind of come from? I've kind of been cycling on and off for the last uh, seven years, um, but only really started riding properly full-time for the last two seasons. And in 2016, I was second at the National Time Trial Champs, and then 2017, finally, won my first national title. Um, yeah, I was really pleased with that. And as far as aerodynamics goes, as a time trialist, people get into that quite a lot but how much do were you into it before you kind of started getting involved in enduro because I also I've heard you've had some dealings with Simon Smart before as well haven't you yeah I've done um, a couple of bits of and pieces with him in the past in terms of aero testing and kind of really developing uh, my position uh, on the bike which was really useful aerodynamics is huge in time trialing I think that's now you know pretty common commonly known so, yeah, it's really important to be part of a team where that's a, a really important thing, and, but also where they have partners, like people like Enduro, that kind of support kind of developing your aerodynamics as well. So let's go to you, Lotta. So when you joined the team, were you brought in directly as a sprinter or was it time trialist for a start? Because they're your kind of two main specialities, aren't they? Well, first of all, I went to the team as a stagiary first, um, and then I just proved myself to to show that I'm a fast girl and um, that I can sprint um, in the peloton. And later on, I guess, um, I also showed my, you know, like strength that I can also time trial. And which do you prefer out of the two? Of course, I think sprinting, yeah. Like um, also being in the bunch and um, it's fun, a long distance, but also I love time trial if you go fast. Or if you have a good legs, then time trialing is the best ever. <laughs> and being a part of Severa Bigler for quite a few years now, what do you think is key to the team that helps it be so successful as it is? Because it's really started to do well over the last few years. If I want to put it in one sentence, what Ashley Moorman has been said, saying the last few years, is that they are, we are a small team, but we have big hearts. How does that translate to you coming together as a team time trial? Yeah, because it's... a. Uh, six girls in a time trial like um, we all have our weaknesses and our strengths and of course um, we try to put it all in together that we show our own strength and um, we have always a plan before the team time trial and we see where I should be in the front and of course because Ashley is the climber she should maybe be in the in the climbs in the front and maybe me in the, in the flat parts. Because I've seen some of your, your training together doing the team time trial and the sprint lead outs and, um, and <laughs> driving along with Thomas Campana shouting and, and during you on. Um, how do you, do you train a lot on the team trial over the year um, as part of the team? Always when we have a chance for it. Um, and I think also Thomas is really passionate about the team time trial and uh, it's a if we are training two hours on a TT bikes together, it's just you have to focus. It's a focus game and, and, and the passion and just the speed. And so last year was a, a really great year for you as well. Uh, you had some big wins. What was kind of the best or the most special part of last year for you, do you think? Um, I think it was cool to win a few spring classics. Of course, it was huge to win Genwevelgem, but also... It was great to win also one stage in Giro in Italy. So um, I think in general it was a nice year. Only the world championships on the on my individual uh, on the road race, that was a little bit disappointing. But all around it was really 
amazing year. And as far as, as the kit goes, kind of describe what it feels like when you get into one of those skin suits. For people who've never got into one, they're the tiniest thing to see on a hanger. And then when you get into it, what does it actually feel like? So it's a mission to get in a in a suit, um, first of all, uh, before the race. Um, but it's a great feeling. Like um, It's such a tiny thing, like you said, and then you just need some time and you need help. Uh, from someone you know to get in but when it's when you're wearing it it feels super tight and aero and fast and yeah you cannot be straight like it when you're just standing you are almost already in an aero position already like um really so you kind of almost bent over like this the whole yeah, time <laughs> exactly so it's made for cycling and it's yeah you feel already aero before the start <laughs> So we're joined now by Matt Bottrell, um, a legendary name. I think that's a, that's a reasonable thing to say in, uh, in, in time trialling, in British time trialling. Remind us a bit of your uh, story, Matt. When did you first get into time trialling? I joined my local club and like most people, I rode my local 10-mile time trial. Uh, and at that time, I, it was on a road bike. I don't think I had tri bars. I rode 24 minutes and a lot of people said, wow, that, for a first one, that, that's pretty impressive. You know, I, I didn't have any clue at all. From there, I kind of, yeah, basically won National Junior uh, 10 the following year and just escalated from there, really. And when did you sort of start thinking that actually this could be your life, this could be a career? Not, not until late on, really. You know, I was predominantly known as a, a road rider. You know, I was part of world-class performance programme. Uh, you know, that's what I realistically wanted to be. I wanted to be a, a road guy, but... I started to realise that, you know, if I did a stage race, I'd probably win the TT. Uh, and then when I had children, I kind of, which was, yeah, 2008, that's when I, I said, right, you know, I haven't got the time to commit to uh, road racing, and so I went into TT. And what lay behind that decision partly was that you were sort of stretched for time. You needed to earn a living and you couldn't train uh, hours and hours every week. Absolutely, you know, I was working full time. I had a young daughter, so yeah, I needed, you know, I had eight hours to train a week, and for road racing, it just wasn't quite enough. So I wanted to become the best at time trial, and I wanted to be the, you know, I wanted to win, and that's what I've always been about is being the best. And I realised that I was going to win TTs more than I was road race. And when did you realise that aerodynamics might be? A part of that might be something that could really help you. It was in 20, 2010, you know, I've been trying all the, for years and years to win a national championship. You know, I used to train really hard. And then I came to National 25, I thought I'd train the hardest I'd ever done. And it was up against Michael Hutchinson and another guy that Simon was uh, working with called Mark Holton. And Mark Holton had never beat me. And both, well, Michael beat me by two minutes and uh, Mark beat me by a minute. I was like, whoa, there's something, yeah, I'm not doing something right here. And that was, that was the game changer. You know, in 2010, I was either going to jack it in or I was going to get scientific. And that's when I came across a power meter and obviously aero. And the aerodynamics was working with Simon Smart? Yeah, def yeah, 20, yeah. So at the end of 2010, uh, I found a new coach and uh, the introduction to Simon was, was made. 
And at that time, you know, like most people, I bought myself into a wind tunnel session and we just kind of hit it off straight away. And, you know, through the following season, we, we just kept in touch. He was giving me, you know, some advice and, yeah, then he kind of asked me to ride for Drag 2-0 at the end of that following year. And obviously aerodynamics has a big impact at the very top levels of the um, of the sport. Um, to what extent do you think ordinary riders, you know, uh, the people who are doing the 10s on a Wednesday night, oh, to, to what extent can it help you know, them? But it, I was in the same position as most people that are, you know, like doing their club racing. You know, I went to the wind tunnel and straight, you know, I made 30 watts within, uh, you know, that first test. And, you know, it's like when you think for me to win, you know, I wanted to win the Nationals. I needed to find 45 watts over this 10 miles. So uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I found this massive gain in aerodynamics. Uh, I only needed to close a, a 15 watt window then. And that, you know, and then that came through training. But for most, you know, domestic people that are riding the club TT, you can make a massive difference through aero. And how you're going to do that is, is, you know, the cheapest way of doing it is looking at your position initially. And then because... Yeah, position and, and clothing is a big part of that because the body, like we say, is 70 to 80% of that drag. So that's where most people need to realistically start. And you're racing again now? You're, you're back racing this season? Yeah. You know, I kind of, like, 2014 was a pinnacle for me. You know, I achieved everything I'd set out to do. Uh, and, you know, set competition record. I'd done everything that I wanted to do. And then 2015, I kind of went through the motions of it a little bit more. And, but I set up my coaching company and that kind of just, you know, it took over. So I still wanted to compete, but I didn't want to compete in cycling because I had no switch off from the day job. So I went into triathlon and I've done two years of that. But the hardest bit about triathlon, that actually takes up more time than what, uh, yeah, what, 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 what one sport does. But it's like for me now, I've kind of... I feel ready to come back, you know, at the end of last year, I lost my mum and it, it's given me a reason to want to come back to the top of the sport again. You know, I'm, I'm probably the most motivated I've, I've been in a long time. And that's the key to all of this. It's having that stimulus to, you know, when it's snowing, raining, you go out and train and I've got that, you know, there's a reason for me to do this. But you're coming back sort of at a, at a lower level in the sport. Do you think you're going to surprise a few people? Uh, I, you know, for me, there's no pressure. The pressure's on everybody else. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, a veteran now. So it's up to other people to, yeah, that, to raise their game. You know, I, I, I'm motivated to come back, but I'm not thinking about what anybody else is doing. I, I can only control what I'm doing. But, I, yeah, I'm more than ready to, to yeah, to fight. <laughs> Matt Bottrell there. Uh, Hannah, this is your first trip to Derby Velodrome, isn't it? What do you think of the place? Yeah, it's a really amazing facility, actually. It's really sort of brand new. Um, and I was talking to the track manager, um, and he was saying what's really great about this track is it's really good for beginners because it's got really lovely, long, sweeping bends and quite short straights. So, yeah, it felt really lovely and just quite natural to get onto it straight away. Yeah, it's a brilliant facility, and one of its big success stories um, has been Team KGF, who were formed here uh, about a year ago, and they're still based here, although none of them are here at this moment. They've uh, won national championships on the 
the track. Uh, they've done really well at World Cups. Uh, Dan Bigham, Charlie Tanfield, Johnny Whale and Jacob Tipper. Uh, they're all off doing different things today. Some of them are racing for Team GB in the World Champs. Uh, some of them are on training camps. Jacob Tipper is with his road team in Taiwan. And when I caught up with him, he explained how important Derby Velodrome was to the team. Derby's been a fantastic facility for us to use. It's fulfilled its purpose perfectly as it's designed as a, as a training facility um, and not as a competition velodrome per se. And that's what it's been brilliant for. It's allowed us to go and do that. It's obviously quite difficult to get on some of the velodromes. With, they are quite limited with um, like Lee Valley and Manchester's obviously uh, very busy with catering for British cycling. So, yeah, having, that, having these additional facilities has been so helpful and useful to have it there. It means that Whenever we've wanted track time, we've been we've, within reason been able to go and get it. There's obviously plenty of other countries and nations and teams that, that haven't that haven't got that ability. Like the American national team, for example, who we have to race, and um, they end up training in. I think they were training in Poland over Christmas. So it's actually been it's really good that in Britain we've got these additional facilities and. The whole sort of region of Derby has been ridiculously helpful for us with that in our development. So how did the team first all come together? In, in a very casual way, to be honest. Dan had done the Nationals the year before. I think I'd ridden it in 2014 at some point in the team pursuit. So for, uh, for this year, Dan, Dan, was keen to get, Dan was keen to give it another go. He'd got um, Charlie as his teammate already, who at the time wasn't this world-class pursuitist, but he... You know, we knew he had he knew he had track experience and track caliber. He was training with Johnny Whale, um, who'd been doing a lot of work for the university champs with Loughborough University. And then I was still in the process of working out which team I was going to ride for for the for that upcoming year. And to be honest, that was sort of one of the selling points that Dan said, "Well, look, if you if you join Brother NRG, you know, we'll get a team suit team together." And as far as I was concerned, I was thinking, "Sweet, well, you know, if I, if I join this team, it's probably a good chance of winning a national medal." Which at the time I was. I thought that would be that's a pretty big deal for me. Just if I'd have got a, if I'd have got a bronze or a silver, I'd have been buzzing off it to be honest. So we just came together, you know, just through a bunch of friends, you know, through Facebook messages, just chatting to doing this, and yeah, it kind of just stemmed from there. Did you have any idea when you started that it was going to be as successful uh, on the track as as it has been? No, but between us, we do have a very mixed bag of characteristics and personalities within our team. From the word go, Dan probably genuinely believed that we'd go and win a World Cup like two years out with no preparation, off, never riding together. He's just got this insane level of optimism. I, on the other hand, was more like, I'm a lot more conservative. And I was thinking, look, if we go there and we ride a sub 420 and no one else turns up, there's probably a good chance we can get a medal. So, and I thought anything else, as far as I was concerned, was a bonus. I, at no point did I think we were going to beat GB. It's obviously not to say when I'm when I'm on the start line, I'm not, I'm not still thinking it, but... Publicly, I wouldn't have bigged us up to get anything more than potentially a medal. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, if, we, if we're lucky, we could probably pick one of the national teams that were doing it. You had like the Scottish and Welsh national team. At no point did I think it was gonna, like, you know, we were even going to go half as fast as we would. Um, to, to put in perspective of Dan's like, incredible optimism, three weeks prior, you know, we were still riding 420s. There was nothing to suggest we were going to go anywhere near as fast as what we did. But then suddenly we got in that final and you know, we qualified quick with a 408. But got in that final and suddenly a 404 was just, you know, we, I, think Dan, I think Dan at some point had said, oh, you know, we could do that and it'll get Johnny his Commonwealth selection times. But I don't think realistically we actually thought we could go that quick. I, I mean, I, when we did it, it was, I'd say, that, I'd say the fact we'd done that time was almost as big an achievement as the fact that we'd won. Like, you know, we all, we're all aware of that 
for an, for an amateur setup, 404 is, you know, like to say, top 10 in the Olympics. We were literally borrowing stuff from around the, the velodrome before the final. I was just going up to people being like, oh, that's a nice Mavic front disc you've got. Do you mind if I borrow that, please? And when you started riding uh, the World Cups, when you started coming up against the really big international track teams, what was their reaction? How did they, uh, how did they react to you? Um, it, it, it was quite humorous, to be honest. I, I, still, I still remember we were at Poland. Um, just you know, we, like, we turned up in absolute awe of everyone. We you know, like, oh, there's there's Italy. Look at the look at the Germans' bikes. You know, we, we were like a bunch of kids in a candy factory sort of thing. We were we we looked we couldn't have looked more out of place to be honest. And then we got on the track, and you know, quite frankly, everyone rides around a bit. You, you get some additional speed on on the warm up sessions because you've got other people on the velodrome. But everyone rides really quite conservative to be honest. They just sort of they ride around in big squads and they don't go that quick to be honest. Because you know, two days before competition, we got on there and just started absolutely nailing it, doing like fourteen point one second laps, which is you know sort of basically world record pace. And then like the Italian coaches on the side of the track, just looking at us like, what, like what is going on here? Why are these absolute whoppers like just sprinting around the velodrome full speed? It was a shame we couldn't pull off what we sort of did in the end early on because it would have been you know, it would have been it would have been such a shock to them because no one knew who we were. Everyone like you know people were thinking who are these amateurs that are turning up to a world cup and just take, taking up space in the pits that someone else could have had and even after poland i think people they still they still looked up and respected respected us after the after the, the way that we yeah even though the speeds we were just going and training people kind of like thinking how oh, these guys are pretty quick and although poland went horrifically wrong um i think dan and charlie still actually crossed the line in a, a, a particularly fast time so yeah, it, it was just a massive shock to a massive shock to all of them, and, it was, and yeah, it was really cool for us to have all these people looking at us and being like, "Yeah, who are these guys?" I also caught up with Ellie Green, their team manager. I bumped into them while I was at Derby Velodrome. I was with another team at that time, and just started chatting to them, watching them sort of train. And at that point, um, they had high ambitions, but their um, training didn't seem to reflect how good they could go. Every, they couldn't get three men across the line. There was a lot of stuff that needed to change. Um, and in that six weeks, they came, they developed so well. And when I was at the Nationals, they obviously won and beat 100% me. From then, it was kind of where, where should we go? What should we do? Clearly, we've, we've done a fast time. Um, but how would that reflect on a larger scale? Um, it sort of went quiet for a little bit. And then we were all on our way back from um, a road race. And we came to the decision that we were going to try and put together a UCI trade team so that we could ride stuff like the World Cups. At that point, I went to my mum's foundation, which is the Cowan Green Foundation, um, and appealed to them because I thought it was going to be a good opportunity to get more exposure for the foundation. Um, we're only a small Nottingham-based charity, but the opportunity to to have the name put on Eurosport and across the country and across the globe really um i thought would do great for the foundation so I went to them then it all just spiraled from there i guess tell us a bit about the karen green foundation because karen green was your mother my mum had leukemia cancer and she sadly passed away from it in 2011 so at that point i was only 11 my dad wanted something that we could build on and i could take on and my little sister could so that's how we started the foundation the foundation um Raises money through sport, a lot of cycling. Um, we do triathlons, Ironmans to try and 
raise awareness and stuff. But we put that money towards holiday homes and caravans. So we buy caravans and then rent them out to families who either parents or children have leukaemia and need a weekend away. Um, because we know when my mum was ill, we didn't get to go on holiday a lot. And when we did, it meant a lot. Uh, you mentioned there that you were 11 in 2011. You're, you're what, 17, 18 now? Yeah, I'm, I'm 18 in just over two weeks. It's an incredibly ambitious thing to be doing, to be running a UCI track team uh, at an age when most people can't even organise themselves to get out of bed. <laughs> yeah, um, it is a big ask. I'm so lucky that I have, well, the five of them are brilliant. We all work together. I think that was a big thing that made the team so strong. It's never one person's in charge of one thing or one person's opinion overrules another. We all, everything is done between us everything whether I need to make a decision or one of the lads make the decision it's a majority vote so that helps and they're they're there if I need any help but luckily I'm really good with highlighters and keeping a diary so I'm always organized when you first met the guys at the velodrome and thought about getting a team together did you have any idea that you were going to be as successful as you have been and continue to be well, I'm soppy when it comes to this, and they'll they'll laugh. But I always knew there was something different. I've I used to work with um I've worked with other athletes. Like my dad owns a bar, so I've always been around, been at races, and I knew that there was something different about them. There's just the way they think, the way they develop, the commitment they have is something I've I've never seen. But no, to be fair, I never thought that we would do. I didn't think that two of them would be going to the world champs, that, more, that we would have been to multiple World Cups. No. Ellie Green of KGF. Well, while we've been in Derby, Stuart Clapp has been off with executive editor Ian Cleverly at the Ice Bike Show in Milton Keynes. Hello, Stu. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. All right. Um, we're in Milton Keynes at Ice Bike. Um, I guess a lot of people will need explaining what Ice Bike is. Yeah, Ice Bike is um, the in-house trade show for Madison. Uh, they're the distributors of um, Shimano, lots of brands. We've had a, a good schmooze around, and there's, there's a few odds and sods that we can have a look at. Um, but first of all, I gather we've had an email in from uh, one of the readers. Uh, yes, yes, we, we have, um, from a uh, Morton Ogbo. I think he lives uh, in, in the middle of nowhere in, in Sweden. I suspect there's, there's wolves there, bears. But he's actually asking about bicycles. Um, could you read out his email for us, please? Um, I want to cycle across slash gravel bike. Where do I look? Yours is nice. How much is that? The mm, guys had promised me a bike since May screw them um, so since we've been at Ice Bike we have had a look round uh, with Morton in mind do, do you know what I think I think Ridgeback yeah Ridgeback Ridgeback you sure? Ridgeback it's never been a cool brand it's not for that it's for a hybrids guys that want to ride to the, the people that, that that class themselves that aren't real cyclists but they they commute probably more than most cyclists ride every week if this new bike, which is called a Ridgeback Ramble, is anything to go on, I think it's, it's kind of has a sister, brother, sister company with Genesis. And I think some of the, the 
the look, styling, and the, like the, the type of bike that it is is actually going across to Ridgeback. I don't know if their offices are next to each other, and they've been looking over each. Well, the designer for Ridgeback's been looking over his mate's shoulder. It's, it's got that sort of the, the, the nice, simple aesthetic that Genesis have as well. I think. Yeah, it has. They're like around about a grand, you know, a, a thousand. I think the, the, the they start out, and the other one's like thirteen hundred quid. And it's, if you're going to ride a bike over that sort of terrain and batter it, run it into the ground. And this doesn't apply to our friend Morton in Sweden. This, this could apply to John from Buckinghamshire. They, the, the road conditions over here are, are terrible at the moment. And if you were looking for a bike to ride over the winter, that sort of thing would be, would be pretty good. You're not going to spend a fortune on it. And if it's going to get trashed anyway. Anything else you've seen that uh, tickled your fancy? It's not new. But I, uh, I didn't steal it. I was given it. Um, one of those cappuccino lock things from Laser, where I don't, I don't tend. I stop at a lot of cafes when I'm out riding, but I don't always carry a lock. Hang on, isn't it called cappuccino? Because it isn't a cappuccino monkey. Am I right? Cappuccino or beer lock or something. I think beer. They call it beer lock in Belgium. And yeah. Cappuccino over here. Let's go for beer lock. All right. Yeah. Let's go for beer lock. Um, I think it's a, it's a must-have for the cafe racer. I don't want to ruin the lines of my my jersey with a lock in it. So, uh, but it's like a little goes between the clasp on your helmet, and it's got a uh, combination lock. That's the word I was after. That's the word I was after. Whack that round a couple of top tubes, and uh, you're set. You can leave your bike outside. So what you're suggesting is mm. you can effectively use your helmet. Oh yes, as a, as a temporary lock. lock. Yes. Just, you know, if you're literally just popping in the shop and coming out. Yeah. I, I didn't get that. Yeah. Right, that's where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Sorry, I wasn't explaining it. I was, uh, I was. Yeah, it's, yeah. You you clip it with a clasp on your helmet. There's a combination lock that sits between the two clasps. You put it in. It clips in one end, clips in the other. Then you set your combination, and you can't get your helmet off until you unclip the lock. So you can lock your bike with your helmet straps. And I don't know if bike bike feeds might carry bolt croppers. I don't know if they've got a pair of um, of uh, fabric scissors to cut through your straps. What else? Shoes. Hang on, I saw you having a good look at. Are you looking at the underside of a shoes? Stuart? Yes, I was. Yeah, I've noticed a bit of a trend. Well, I didn't realise it was a trend at the time, but I uh, I saw at Rulo Classic, Giro had done a synth with like a. Oh, they, they call it fire chrome. It's like an oil spillage colour. You know when you get that rainbow on the road? Yeah. Like that. The Giro synth has got that in their the panel in their helmet, and Pearl Azumi have used a similar effect on the sole of their shoe. Electroplating, it's called. I've just I've I've found out all about it. The shoes are now being made in the same place that Shimano have and theirs made, and Pearl Azumi shoes weren't. Well, they weren't. They weren't up to the, the standard that, that, that Shimano are, and I think I think that agree with me when when I, when I say that. But now they are, and it's a fantastic look. It's called the Pro Leader V4. V4, I, I guess, is version 4. It must yeah, be the newest. Exactly. But um, they've got eight asymmetric dials on the top. The sole is it's quite, it's quite something. You get a little flash. I think that's quite, quite a cool thing. And I think Pearl Azumi, one of those brands that sort of... They don't quite get the love that, that they perhaps should have. They've been around for a long, long while, Pearl Azumi, and they've been involved with Pro Cycling and the Pro Peloton for a long while. Like US Postal, 
Garmin Transition, Slipstream, whatever it was, BMC were riding in it. And then when BMC switched last season to ASOS, they're, they're not in the Pro Peloton anymore. But I think it's one of those brands that there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot going on there, actually. And I, I, I think that I think we'll, we'll see a lot more from them over the next season. They've done a, a, a fabric, um, a PI Dry, which I found really interesting while I was over there mooching around on their stand. It's actually a fabric rather than a coated fabric, like some of these waterproof cycling kit that, that, that we have like that repels water you it's not just a treatment it's actually the fabric that so it's not so in theory you shouldn't have to respray it with that what's it called nick wax or something yeah like that, yeah it? that's that's the stuff yeah you you, you don't have to respray you don't have to retreat it it's they've got a bucket of water there and i i turned some stuff inside out just see whether it worked on the roubaix lining and it does because it's there and well it's handy if you ever want to wear your your jersey inside out but do you think you're likely to want to wear your jersey inside out? Yeah, no, prob- probably not, no. no prob- prob- probably not, but, but it, it does work like that. And I, it was worth a test, it was worth a test. And that's it from this edition. Next time, uh, we'll have an extended special edition all about one of the greatest races on the calendar, L'Enfer du Nord, Paris-Roubaix. Uh, catch up then, but uh, for the time being, it's goodbye from me, Ian Parkinson. And goodbye from me, Hannah Troop. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.